So for today, Sunday School, as we've been going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, today actually we're going to finish chapter one about the Word of God. And we're going to do two sections, section nine, section 10. Um, I decided to do them together because they are short sections and they're very similar. Okay, so let me read both of these sections, section 9 and then section 10, uh, what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Sec uh, chapter 1, section 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Uh, basically, uh, to summarize this section, it says that Scripture is the... Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, it says that Scripture is... Uh, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Um, but not only that, uh, we should use uh, more direct and more clear parts of Scripture to interpret those parts of Scripture that might uh, not be so clear, okay? Not the other way around, and we'll come back to that, because that is one of the uh, true and tested ways for us as Christians to tell when something is a heresy, because when folks try to uh, peddle heretical teaching, oftentimes they will do the other way around, where they will take a clear part of scripture, but use obscure passages to muddle it up. We'll look at some uh, instances of that, okay? But, but that's section nine. Section 10, uh, chapter one, section 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. Um, so there in section 10, it says, if there are any controversies of religion, uh, in the church, that basically we appeal to Scripture as our final appeal, not to the decrees of councils, not to the opinions of ancient writers, not to, uh, you know, whatever books about systematic theology or whatever, even if it's by like Burkhoff or, you know, Calvin. I'm not saying they're wrong, but um, in it's interesting here, the Confession of Faith says, and not to private spirits, meaning what each of us might think or say, even if we think we've received some kind of vision from God or dream from God. Um, but uh, basically the, 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 the final uh, say in all controversies of religion are um, we appeal to the scripture, the Holy Spirit speaking to us through scripture. Okay. So yes, Tony, uh, today we are... Um, Remind me the, the name of your wife again? Tasha. Tasha. Tony and Tasha. Uh, we are doing, for Sunday School, we are covering sections 9 and 10 in the Westminster Confession of Faith.
um, and you can find that chapter one. You can find that in the middle of your uh, in the middle of your bulletin. Let Let's go back to section nine, where uh, uh, the idea is that we use scripture to interpret scripture. Um, even more specifically, we use clear parts or easier to understand parts of scripture to interpret those parts of scripture that we that i i wouldn't say is more difficult but 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 that are maybe allegedly more difficult you you always try to use more clear parts to 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 interpret the less clear parts and not the other way around okay Tony, what was your question? Just real quick, can you just give my wife just a reader digest, ver a reader digest version of what the Westerner confession of faith is? Oh, okay, sure. Um, when when November first is what we call no, uh, uh, Reformation Day. Uh, that was you know around that time. That was when Martin Luther, the 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 the, the German reformer, nailed the the ninety nine thesis on on the church on the door of the church in Wittenberg, right, Germany, uh, saying, you know, these are all the ways that uh, that scripture counters what the Catholic Church is doing. And that started a huge reformation uh, in Europe. Uh, what happened was uh, basically all of Europe at that time was, was Catholic. And so the reformation started in Germany with Luther, but it slowly expanded and, and, and grew and grew and grew. Uh, one of the last... One of the later places where the Reformation went to was England, because you know they didn't have planes back at that time. There was no internet, so when something happened in Germany, it took a while for the news to travel to England, um, and basically it took folks from England to travel to the to the continental Europe to to be involved in the continental Europe European Reformation. It took these guys to go back to their homeland in England to start the English Reformation. Uh, so the English Reformation was a little bit later than everybody else. But basically, whenever you would start, uh, whenever they did a Reformation, basically you have to set, they, they decided, not you have to, but they decided to, to set down in writing what their beliefs were, especially in terms of what their beliefs were that differed from the Catholic Church's teaching, okay? So that's why they wrote the Confession, uh, that's why they wrote the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith because they, there was a big church gathering that happened at Westminster Abbey, that that's a place you can still visit today. No, it burned, it, it, it caught on fire, right? It's still, there, though. it's still there, but it caught on fire, right? I don't know if you can still visit today, but, but you know, it, it's an actual place called Westminster Abbey. Uh, just, you know, as an aside, that's the place where they do the coronation for the king. They must have fixed it up, right? Because King George had his coronation. No, no, King, um, not King George, um, what's his name? King Charles. Charles had his coronation. Right, that's Westminster Abbey, okay? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm figuring they fixed it up. Wow. Okay, um, but this was in the 1600s. Uh, they they gathered at Westminster Abbey. That's why it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And why is that important for us? Um, yeah, I think 
basically because we determined it to be so. <laughs> um, I mean, compared to like, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a reformer in my theology, so right. as, as I come also from a Pentecostal background, right. which I didn't know, any, I didn't even hear of a confession, yeah, uh, a catechism, yeah, uh, any of that. So I guess. So how? Come, Long story short. So how come they don't really? Yeah. You don't have this. Or this study of yeah, you get what I'm saying. Sure. Hopefully, um, so the the most condensed reading, I guess, is the Westminster Confession of Faith is our stated statement of belief. There is a there is a historical answer to your question and a theological answer to your question. Okay, the historical answer to your question is because because America America was colonies of England and not of France or Germany. So when when the English came over, they were uh, many of them were reformed. Many of them had the Westminster Standards as their rule of practice, so they just carried it over. The Presbyterian Church that you see today, it's it's a very complicated tree history, okay? But basically the idea is the American Presbyterian Church today draws its roots, supposedly, right? Draws its roots from the first settlers in America, English settlers who were part of the, you know, the the Reformed Presbyterian Church in 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 that that you know in England that 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 had the stand uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger catechism and shorter catechism as their as their standards. Okay. Um, yes. Karen uh, mentioned the stone that's in under the stone thing. That stone is from Scotland and has to do with the Scottish throne. And the reason I interrupted you with mentioning it is at the time of the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechism, the king is king over both Scotland and England, but it's not yet the United Kingdom. Yeah. So it's two separate governments. Yeah. Uh, and one of the problems with like, why are they doing this historically is because the king is forcing the Scottish Presbyterians to have bishops uh, in liturgy. And they're like, no, we, that's not biblical. There are yeah. no bishops in the Bible. Not, you know, we don't want liturgy. We want to worship everybody. Yeah. So, so that's confusing. And then the English church is trying to figure out what to do. They yeah. have different different factions without getting into all that. So so the parliament calls yeah. for all of the churchmen to gather yeah. and to instruct parliament. What does the Bible teach about these kind of things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, Tony, it's it's a long history of the church, of the of the Presbyterian church. Uh, but basically the idea is if you trace it back, we trace our lineage to the the, the English reformers. It's also um, true that the Baptists objected to some points. So they wrote a confession. Yeah. 1689. Yeah. But it's virtually word for word. Yeah. Of the Westminster Confession. Yeah. Yeah. Except on baptism. Yeah. And church government. Yeah. So, I mean. And there are other statements historically, but we like this one best, is the private one. 
that's a, that's a whole nother course in church history, Tony. Yeah. You know what? That's right. That yeah. is considered church history. You're right about that. Yeah. That is. That's um, where you learn all. There the are there are American Presbyterian or Reformed churches in the United States that do not draw their lineage from the English Reformation from the Dutch Reformation. So they have different, not different, but but they'll have the Westminster Confession of Faith, but but other uh, confessions of faith that they Heidelberg right. And others, uh, Belgic Confession, right, right. And uh, what was the other one? Um, the one that's really, uh, the, the name is, yes, the Synod of Dort, the one that's really, uh, you know, got people upset because of its very clear teachings on double predestination. Yeah, the Synod of Dort doesn't, you know, mince any words when it comes to God predestines some to election and some to condemnation. It doesn't mean it just goes right out and, you know, uh, says so it. My last question then, I mean, like, here again, you know, um, thank God for Sunday school, Bible classes, but um, um, growing up in church, um, I, I can't recall um, even, I guess, teachings of, of church history. Uh, you know, like, seriously, I didn't know anything about, I think, church history until... Yeah, I met these guys. Yeah. Um, where where you know they were talking about a thing of church history. So yeah, church history is, uh, it's actually it, it helps you to understand. Um, it, it's it's very vital. Uh, I I would say it 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 basically really helps me to understand, uh, the the alleged controversies in the church, and why why they first started out. Thank you. Uh, for example, and. We're, we're, we're going off trail here. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but let me, let me just say one thing, okay? For example, the whole difference between Presbyterians and Baptists in regards to infant baptism or believer's baptism. You know, people go back and forth about what the Bible says or what the Bible doesn't say. Somebody's waving. <laughs> Hi, Rod. Is he able to come in? Okay. Um, did you know that from the perspective of church history, the idea of believer's baptism was not at first a theological uh, initiative where, where they searched the Bibles and said, oh, well, we think you know the Bible teaches believer's baptism. It was a political thing. It was a political thing because at the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church started to do a counter-Reformation violent counter-reformation being like if you guys are going to split from the catholic church we're not just going to excommunicate you from the church we're going to send the army in to kill you hey rod um no that's tasha rod no, not tony Well, yeah, that's that's all right. This is a good discussion, but hopefully we can cover some of you know today's Sunday school as well. But just to end my my point on on baptism, uh, so there was a violent Counter Reformation by the Catholic Church where they sent in armies to to besiege cities and kill people 
to, to search out people who were part of the Reformation and basically to, to not just excommunicate, but to just to kill them. Uh, and so a lot of the Reformed churches got very afraid. Some of the places that were most besieged by the Catholic armies, basically this is what they said. All right, we're going to have our church, Reformed church, but we're going to force everybody to be rebaptized as a, you know, as a, uh, as a pledge of fidelity to uh, our, our, our reform movement um, and to do it to, to root out Catholic spies, right? Because you know, there were Catholic spies in church. If you're a Catholic spy and you got rebaptized by this church, I mean, you were basically outed. That's what the Chinese people do in America right now. The Chinese students here, they go to churches and watch what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. But so, so one of the ways they, they counter that, the Reformed Church, particularly in Switzerland, Zwingli and, 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 and his group, the way they counter that was by saying, everybody gets rebaptized. I don't care you know, if you're baptized before, I don't care if you're baptized as an infant, everybody get rebaptized because it's a, it's a pledge of fidelity to our movement. That's, that's where the word Anabaptists comes from. We read about that. <laughs> that's where the word Anabaptist, Anna meaning again, baptized, and that's basically where the entire Baptist movement comes from. And then after that, they said, okay, here are all the scripture proofs that show that, you know, believer's baptism is the real thing. So, so they, did, they did it backwards. So that, that gives you an understanding of the entire Baptist movement. It was a political thing to root out spies first. That was the motivation. It wasn't, let's search scripture to see whether infant baptism is really legitimate or not. It was, no, we got to root out spies so this is how we're going to do it. It was a blunt instrument. And let's go back because we got to convince people. Let's go back and fill in scripture proofs to, to show that it's okay. Now I just said some very controversial things. No, no. All right. So we've got six minutes to cover uh, the confession of faith. Uh, let's turn to Second Peter 1. But Tasha, one of the one of the ways you can tell that the Confession of Faith was written in response as a response to the Catholic, the false Catholic teachings is one of the ways you can tell that it's a response to that is chapter one has to deal with the authority of scripture. At the time, nobody believed that scripture was totally authoritative or authoritative. People, the Catholic Church taught the church was authoritative, the Pope was authoritative. In the popes and the churches interpretation of scripture was authoritative okay so so even the way they wrote the confession of faith chapter one being no the authority of scripture is authoritative uh, even in section 10 when it says the supreme judge by which all controversies are to be determined uh, are not in the creeds are not in the opinions of ancient writers are not in the doctrines of men but rather the holy spirit speaking of scripture even that is a counterpoint against the the, the Catholic Church. Okay, so let, let's just put that out there. All right, Second Peter, chapter one, verses twenty to twenty-one. You know, in section nine, basically where it says, "Whenever there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly." So not just that scripture ought to interpret scripture, but that more clear parts of scripture should interpret allegedly less uh, clear parts of scripture. 
uh, and not the other way around. But this little uh, parenthesis, which says scripture, is not manifold, but one, meaning uh, the, the truth contained in scripture, there's just one. There's not multiple truths. Uh, to borrow a, a term that's been, uh, that, that's been uh, used, to borrow a, a heresy that's been too prevalent in the Reformed Church, there are not multiple perspectives in Scripture. There, are not, there is not a, pers a new perspective of Paul in regards to doctrine, you know, the covenant, Jesus, salvation by faith alone, okay? There's not a perspective of Paul and a perspective of Jesus and a perspective of Peter and a perspective of the Old Testament. Scripture is one voice. There's one truth. Okay. And, and the way we get that is from 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Uh, I'll start with verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it says very clearly that uh, there, no prophecy of Scripture came by a, a man's particular interpretation or a man's particular opinions or thoughts and, 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 and writing styles and things like that. But in regards to scripture, holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, so basically, it's the Holy Spirit that inspires scripture. Even though the Holy Spirit worked through Peter, who was a very different person than Paul, very different person than Moses, very different person than David. Okay, each of them had their personalities and differences in writing styles, etc., etc., etc. But the content, the truth, is the same. It's not different perspectives on the truth, but the truth is one, not manifold, because it's one basic author. It's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it says the Spirit. I like the phrases in the various translations where it says holy men were carried along. Yes. It says God, you know, you says God breathed into them. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit carried right. them along in their own language. So right. The the New King James Version says, But holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I think you know you could uh I have to check which version says carried along. Um yeah, but it's the same same idea. Yeah. Right. Right, and that, that would be Second Timothy three sixteen. Um, so there's one truth. There is not. Whenever, easy way to tell what, what is a heresy. Whenever somebody says, well, there's a perspective of Paul on the covenant. There's a per and, and, and Jesus has a different perspective. And, and, and Peter has a different perspective. And, and Moses had a different perspective. No, it's so not. Can you explain what a heresy is? I mean, what, what, what is a heresy? Then? A, a heresy. So terminology then? Uh, it's just a teaching that's false. False, false teaching. False teaching in terms of not consistent with scripture. It's heresy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they won't couch it as heresy. They'll say, this is, this is the latest stuff. N.T. Wright does this. Okay. Uh, the PCA did it. Maybe still hasn't come out to totally 
excommunicate those who are still teaching it. I don't know what the what the current status is. Okay, there's a there's a very there's a very popular movement called the New Perspective on Paul. Okay, that's going on everywhere in 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 the seminaries. So whenever you hear things like perspective of Paul, where here's this is the perspective of Peter, where this is the perspective of Jesus, and it's it's all different. That that's 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 a huge red flag for okay, what you're gonna say next is a heresy. Yeah, that kind of started with people saying, Well, okay. Paul says this about one in the church or whatever it may be, but they say Jesus never said that. So it's the same type of right. thing. Yeah, I got you. Okay. So 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 then the question then would be then, so if a person is gonna to continue to teach and advocate for these heresies, then are they authentic Christians? Right. I mean, like, the big one is, I hear all the time within my family circles is, you know, well, you're going over there with them Bible thumpers that preach against uh, women pastors. So if a person is going to continue in that, I mean, we're looking at their fruit. Are they, I mean, I know God only knows the heart, but I guess I'm just looking from what they're actually teaching because they're then they're teaching other people to follow in the same yeah. theology that it, no, it's okay that you yeah. know women absurd authority over men and yeah. and being you know, teachers and stuff like that. Yeah, that might be another Sunday school. What it's to so do? <laughs> but basically, you you answered it right. God, only God knows the heart. So in regards to that person's, and we are not to judge, yeah, right? right? In regards to teaching, not necessarily. Right. Exactly. Right. So so be aware. For yourself and the people that you watch over, like your family, right? Make sure that they are being fed the right thing, scripture, the truth. Okay, so you watch over them as their guardian, as also yourself. But in regards to judging, okay, whether somebody is saved or not, God only God knows the heart. Okay, um, let me let me do this. I'll end this because it's eleven thirty-two. Um, we need more time in Sunday school. <laughs> sure, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I thought the same thing, actually. Let me, let me give some examples, okay? Other red flags for when you should be expecting heresy. Uh, in section 9, it says, Whenever there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, scripture which is not, doesn't have manifold meanings, but just has one meaning because it's the Holy Spirit speaking, but whenever there is a question about the true and full sense of Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So that's the principle, is if you have a question about the days of creation, you know, was there actually a day, 24-hour day, or is it thousands of years, or eons, or ages, uh, uh, women pastors, okay, whenever there's a question or a controversy in the church, not only do you let Scripture interpret Scripture, but you're supposed to search out the clear parts of Scripture to interpret the less clear parts. Okay, I'll give you one example, the days of Scripture. Go back and read Genesis 1, right? Because there you have the most clear part of Scripture where it says, and then there was night, and then there was day, the second day. Then there was night, then there was day, the third day. Then was there night, and there was day, the fourth day. Okay, uh, I read that to my two-year-old, and he's thinking these are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
Okay, these are 24-hour days. He's not thinking it's thousands of years. Okay? When people, like that's, that's clearly in the text, and that's the most clear, direct interpretation of the word day in Genesis. What people will do is, well, they'll say, well, you look at the word day in Isaiah, where it says the day of the Lord is coming. And obviously in Isaiah, it's a, it's a prophecy talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, and we know throughout history, uh, especially in, into the New Testament, that the day of the Lord isn't just one 24-hour day. It's actually a whole age, thousands of years. And so Isaiah uses the word day to, to represent an age. And so the word day in Genesis must also represent an age. Okay. What my point in no, they're actually the same word, Rod Yom. It's just the word Yom. No, it's just the word Yom. It, it's it means day in in in, in Hebrew. Uh, but basically, my point is this: the way heresies argue, the way false teachers argue, they will always take a clear part but use an obscure part of scripture to reinterpret the clear part. Okay, and we're not to do that. So they do the reverse of section 9 that, that we read, where it says uh, you must take clear parts to interpret unclear parts. Take the most clear part to interpret the, 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 the controversies and the questions. Okay, a red flag for us for when there might be a heresy coming is when people do the reverse, when they take an obscure part and use that to reinterpret or when they say it's a clear part. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you another example. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. There are many clear parts of Scripture. Galatians, you know, Romans 5, um, many other parts of Scripture where it's absolutely clear. Salvation is by faith alone. Okay? Salvation is by faith alone. In seminary, they taught us Romans 2. Romans 2, uh, just to summarize, Romans 2 is a section where Paul is basically laying out the indictment against humanity. All have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that's his conclusion, Romans 3. But in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is laying out his, his indictment against all humanity. Uh, Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners condemned under God's law. In Romans 2, Paul goes off to make like an illustration and he presents a hypothetical. Basically he says, if someone wants to follow the law and be saved by the law, then they must do the law perfectly and God will judge them according to the law. Okay, that's his argument in Romans two. Uh, but basically he says that's not possible because in Romans three he says, you know, all for all have fallen short. Okay, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Everybody, you know, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned aside, all have become worthless something like that. Um, in seminary, in Doctrine of Salvation, we learned about Romans 2, and we were taught that you could take Romans 2 out of the context and argue in a way where uh, there is a salvation by grace, but final salvation is by God's grace working in accord with your works. Okay? okay the first so, problem here was that big button you just said. 
Yeah. That was just that spoke volumes to me what you said. The butt. But basically, that yeah. Basically, in <laughs> seminary, we took we took this obscure passage, obscure, not obscure passage. We took this clear passage, obscured it, okay, and then we learned just based on that passage alone that it taught that salvation, final salvation, was by grace working in accord with your works or something. You know, salvation was by faith but work in accord also with your works at final salvation. And that's just that's just foolish. Because one clear way to counter that would be, well, no, then you take what about the more clear parts? Like Galatians and Romans 5 and if, yes, many parts Mark, okay? Many 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 other parts of scripture that are absolutely clear that we are saved by faith alone. You know, saved by grace alone through faith alone. And not any works, okay? But that's kind of a, a red flag for us, for, for, for how we can tell if something's a heresy. If somebody starts to say, well, we learned two things today, how red flags for heresy. If somebody starts to say, well, Paul's perspective is this, and Peter's perspective is different, and they're all different than Jesus's perspective, and you know that's different from the God of the Old Testament's perspective. Okay, when people start talking about perspectives, then then that's a red flag. When people start to use obscure parts of scripture to try to explain their positions rather than going to the clear parts, that's another red flag, okay? Um, but that's what it means to let scripture interpret scripture and to let scripture be the final authority, not the opinions of men, not the opinions of the church, not even the Westminster Confession of Faith itself, right? So the way we are to consider what we're learning in Sunday school is this is a sure it's a we believe this is a faithful summary of scriptural teaching but even if we have questions or controversies about with the Westminster Confession of Faith that the final authority is scripture itself yeah and, and in the confessions also have the scriptures to go along with because we're, we're working through the catechism with all the markings so I noticed, like last week when we were doing it, there's a host of scriptures that that will parallel, par you know, go and you know together with actually what they're saying, so we can actually look at the actual scripture itself. Yeah. So. Yeah, but, but the final appeal is still with scripture. scripture. Yes, yes. Like if anybody ever finds something that's like, oh, scripture teaches something that's not taught or opposite to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Then, then you go to scripture. You know, hypothetically, if that ever happened, then you 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 go to scripture. Well, yeah. Isn't it, uh, isn't it true that if you say that the uh, scripture is 